Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly biotechnology podcast that's not just about biotechnology. Providing information to help you change hearts and minds. Moving innovations to application with communication. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about medicine and agriculture, where we spend most of the time talking about biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet, and for critters, because we've been doing a lot of talks about animals lately. We're doing one on chicken domestication in a few weeks, and that's kind of neat. I'm sitting with Dr. Monica Schmidt from University of Arizona, and also a Kat Crosby. Kat is a uh, student here at University of Florida, uh, and uh, also uh, a co-host, but we've done lots of stuff over time together. So can you tell us a little bit about what you do, Kat? Well, I am a junior in the microbiology and cell science department, and I'm looking to pursue a career in research and medicine, and I'm exploring my options right now between MD-PhD or just a traditional PhD route, and I'm just exploring what I can for now. Yeah, and we've had fun talking about science communication. Absolutely. Which is always very cool. And uh, so, Dr. Schmidt, can you tell us, you were a guest on episode 76. That's right. Very popular episode, too, by the way. It was Great. Yeah, it was one of, one of the big ones in terms of total number of downloads. But could you give us kind of an update on what that project was and maybe where it is today? Yeah, so uh, that project got a lot of uh, press attention, and that was great. Um, so the research involved trying to engineer a corn kernel so it could shut off a fungal-produced toxin. Um, So it's the aspergillus fungus, and when it infects certain crops, it produces a toxin called aflatoxin. Here in the U.S., we monitor crops, and if it's below a certain level, it gets incinerated. So it's a huge economic concern here in the U.S., but really we were targeting it to developing countries like Africa, where there is no testing, there is no luxury of incinerating crops, they're eating it, and it is a known liver carcinogen. Mm -hmm. So there's crazy high levels in certain villages with people with aflatoxin in their blood level and the incident of liver cancer. It's also been implicated in um, stunting of children's growth. So we thought that was ridiculous. We're losing millions of tons of crops to this fungus. So we engineered a way that the corn can stop 
the fungus from producing the toxin. So we were really successful with that. It was just great. We got it published in the online version of Science almost a, a year ago now. And right now we're pursuing moving it to the field. I mean, it really has to perform well in a field, you know, under insect stress, under drought resistance. And if it does that, then it can move forward to the next steps. That's really exciting. We also had on uh, Dalip Shah, who talked about the uh, groundnut uh, aflatoxin suppression. And it really is amazing because he said something like a billion people, or he said even more. I think he said like maybe three or four billion people have chronic exposure. And that seemed really crazy to me, but is that about right? So the World Health Organization basically is estimating half the world population is chronically exposed to aflatoxin. Wow, to this liver carcinogen Mm -hmm. that you have a potential solution for that seems to work really well. Yeah, uh, so far the corn works really well when it's developing in the field. So we're also working on ways now to try to move that technology that it would help reduce the toxin when the kernels are being stored because yeah. aflatoxin affects twice. So we have some ideas, but the fungus is pretty crafty. Yeah, well, not to you know keep plugging the own, our own podcast, but episode 103 talks about this hermetically sealed container in Africa uh-huh. where if you can store the, in an, uh, store the corn kernels or whatever grain in an, uh, in an air-free environment, how it really, te- how it really curbs the aflatoxin presentation. So maybe it's a combination of all these things that can really do it for us. Yeah, absolutely. When I first proposed that project, I never thought it was going to be a cure-all. I thought it was going to be part of the solution. And good storage is always going to be part of a solution, especially in these developing countries. Something like 75% of their stored crops is lost to insect feeding. So if you can get the insects and the air out, then... That's most of their battle. Yeah, so so someday when you win the World Food Prize, I hope you remember <laughs> the podcast. <laughs> Come back and talk to us. Sure, yeah, if that happens, I'll, I'll definitely remember. So yesterday you talked a lot about this at your seminar. However, a lot of your current work sounds like it's on carotenoid production. Could you just go over what carotenoids are and why do they matter? Yeah, so uh, it's a fun project we've been doing for a while in soybean, uh, but there's almost 700 known carotenoids in nature. So those are the colorful compounds that most people know and enjoy, especially in the fall when the leaves turn color. Those carotenoids have always been there. It's just when the chlorophyll dies off, you see them in the fall. Um, But six of them in particular are known to have health benefits. So those are the six that we're targeting, and we want to fortify them in crops that are in things that people eat on a daily basis. So carotenoids in plants are involved in the photosynthetic complex. So they're harvesting that light energy. So they're doing something very similar (laughs) most of uh, the time when you consume it. They sit at the back of your retina. And instead of converting light energy into chemical energy, which is what plants do, it's just grabbing that light energy so that light energy isn't hitting holes in your retina. So most of the time, you you associate with carotenoids with eye health. 
Yeah, so that and that's typically well because they're you also use a chromophore for opsin. I mean, you have uh, this, the retinoids uh, are involved there, right. and then you have uh, these other ones that are used. Uh, carotenoids are used as a photoprotective. Yeah, and and then they also have other roles in the body too, right? Yeah, so it's not so the first thing that you think of is that their eye health, and you know, your mom probably told you eat your carrots, you know, to have good vision, and that's true. But um, as you find in developing nations where they're not getting enough. They're also affecting nutrient absorption. So the really terrible thing is if you don't get enough beta carotene, which is the signature orange color in carrots, beta carotene is converted to vitamin A, and kids in developing countries, a quarter of a million to half a million preschool kids, so under the age of five, are losing their vision every year because they just don't have enough of that compound in their diet. And then the heartbreaking thing is half of those die with it within a year after losing sight. And yeah, I thought, what, what is going on there? And it's because it also helps the absorption in your intestines uh, absorb nutrients. So even if these children are eating the right calories, they still can't even absorb it. Yeah, and that's, that's one of the really big tragedies of these things is that uh, when you talk about vitamin A or iron or zinc, you're looking at the amount that's probably a tenth of a grain of sand uh, in a daily diet, or maybe even less. And these profoundly small amounts have these huge spirals of physiological yeah. uh, disaster for, for children mostly, but also for adults. And and if there are ways to get this into the food, right, that's been our challenge. So many of the world food staples have um, very little beta carotene. It's like potatoes, cassava, rice, uh, bananas, you know, matoke bananas. All these things have almost no beta carotene. So how do we, can we use biofortification to put it there? And that's really where you've been. Yeah. And, and your work has been in soybean, which yeah. is Yeah. So I love soy. Soy, I always say, is going to dominate the globe soon. So part of it is, too, getting people maybe in developing nations that don't have a soy diet, maybe just incorporating more soy. So soy is really great in protein. And soy knows how to handle lipids because it's an oilseed crop. So that's one of the primary reasons why I decided to try to fortify carotenoids are lipid-soluble. So we could fortify something that already makes oil and knows how to handle it, um, knows how to store it. And we're, we've been successful at fortifying uh, soybean with uh, carotenoids. And so we do have a lot of people who are interested in the chemistry of this. So exactly how did you go about changing the accumulation of carotenoids? Yeah, so you have to look at the biochemistry <laughs> and see which is the compound that would be the rate-limiting factor. So we knew that this one compound, journal journal pyrophosphate, was involved in probably five different pathways. So it's a branch point. It's a pivotal decision point in the metabolism of the seed. So we thought, okay, if we need to shuttle it down this carotenoid pathway, we need a very strong promoter to drive that enzyme in a very efficient enzyme at that step. So we took a very efficient catalytic enzyme from a different microbe. We took it from a bacteria. We codon optimized it. We put it under a strong seed promoter. People are only eating seed in soybean. There's no need for me to do something in the leaf tissue. We wanted it in the seed. And it ended up being that soybean, um, even though it wasn't the first carotenoid, soybean accumulates a lot of the beta carotene. Yeah, and, and so basically you're just turning on the faucet that goes down one of the five pathways extra high. Right. So now you're taking all that precursor and shoving it down this pathway that ends up in beta carotene. And so how did it work? 
Yeah, so we got uh, record high levels of uh, beta-carotene on a per-weight basis. So we have beaten golden rice. I'm sure you heard of them. Uh, they did uh, fortification with three different genes in that same pathway. We got to the same result with one gene. And that's important for regulatory issues when you move down the line. You, know, you want to use the less introduced nucleotides that you can. So we were happy about that. Uh, and we got over 800 micrograms of beta-carotene per gram of soybean seed. And we beat uh, golden rice many times over. We are the highest on a per-weight basis in any of the systems that have been fortified. So potatoes have been done, bananas have been done. But, but uh, golden rice was, do you remember the numbers off the top of your head? I remember your slide. Oh, yeah, I remember the slides. But so. it was it was like 1,700 times the beta carotene or was i'm thinking something uh 1700 was how much we increased from the wild type levels okay so soybean has to have beta carotene because it's in the photosynthetic complex so all we did was yeah like ratchet up that faucet like instead of a little dripping we really turned it on uh so it was already there that's why we call it fortification it's not a real introduction it was just more of the same were there any other collateral effects of this engineering event yeah, so uh, fortuitously, we found uh, in, in soybean, it's always protein and oil. That's, that's the two main commodities when you grow soybean seed. They squish the oil, it goes to a number of industrial processes, and then the protein goes for animal meal. So whenever you talk about a trait in soybean, you, you got to let them know how you affected protein and oil because that's what drives the price. So um, we got a slight reduction in oil. But the interesting ones were more overall protein, so 4 to 8% more overall global protein, and that's huge. So soybean is grown for protein, so if you get more protein per seed, how many seeds per plant, how many plants per acre, you're talking some serious economics that you just now got more per land use and per resources. On the other hand, we also got a healthier oil profile, and that was, again, something we didn't set out to do, but very happy to find it. So, of course, we've all heard about trans fats, those nasty fats that clog our arteries when I eat the good things that are fried. (laughs) (laughs) So now FDA is banning trans fats, so we have to find ways for healthy oil so the trans fats can't can't happen. So high oleic 18.1 is really the oil you want. That's an oil that has nice frying uh, frying profile, but yet... Uh, won't produce trans fats. So that's the holy grail in the oil industry. And we got elevated oleic acid in our soybean. And we're pursuing both of those traits now. How did we get high oleic acid by itself? And how did we get overall protein by itself? So as most research, this has just opened up the floodgates and I got a lot (laughs) more work to do. (laughs) So do you think that there's a chance that this could be commercialized? I hope so. I hope there's always a chance. I don't do most of the research unless I think it's going to make an impact. This, really what I'm about is trying to get something out there and solve a problem, or at least be part of a solution to a problem. So either it's the aflatoxin or the beta-carotene, but I dream of one day something moving forward. Uh, the soybean industry in the U.S. Uh, already donates big industrial soy milk makers so they have talked to me about trying to get my beta-carotene seeds out so the little kids could be drinking soy milk. Yeah, that's really great. I, I noticed that about everything in your program seems to have that um, end user in mind. Yep. <laughs> you know, it's, it's basic science, but it's all kind of built around this idea, especially with in the in the parlance of food security. Yeah. And so it was that 
by design or is that just the way that is that why you got into science was to solve a problem yeah so i am so goal oriented by nature it's in my dna so i when i go into anything even on a daily basis it's like why am i doing this what am i doing why am i doing it why am I doing it is the most important thing to me. And for me, it's not about getting another paper out, another high-impact paper. It's nice if that happens, but I really just want to make a difference. That's no, really great. It's really nice. Well, we'll take a short break here. Um, this is the Talking Biotech Podcast. I'm sitting here with my co-host, Kat Cropsey, <laughs> and, uh, and Dr. Monica Schmidt from University of Arizona. We'll be back in just a moment. Hello, Talking Biotech listeners. My name is Nick Syke, and I wanted to take just a quick moment to tell you about No Ideas Media. That's no with a K and a W. It's a media company I've recently started, and its express purpose is to have pragmatic conversations about divisive topics. And I'm willing to bet that since you're here listening to a biotechnology podcast, you'd probably agree that a pragmatic conversation about this topic could benefit a lot of people, especially when we're talking about biotechnology in food. This is the first topic I wanted No Ideas Media to focus on, and I wanted to learn it pretty well, so I traveled like all over the place. I interviewed Ashwaka experts, I'm making videos with all these interviews, and I'd love you to check them out. You can find them by searching No Ideas Media on YouTube or Facebook. Remember, that's no as in knowledge. The videos are perfect for people who aren't super familiar with the science, so I would really encourage you to share them, especially with people you know who need to take a look at this a little more pragmatically. Follow No Ideas Media on Facebook and get in on the conversations there. It also really helps us if you subscribe to the No Ideas Media YouTube channel. Plus, that way you'll always know when there's something new and exciting to watch and share. And I mean, let's face it, we all want to be in the know, right? That's why you're listening to this podcast after all, which I think I'll let you get back to about now. Thanks a lot. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. Today we're talking about biofortification of specific crops with carotenoids and, and also some other topics as well. We're speaking with Dr. Monica Schmidt from University of Arizona and sitting here with my co-host Kat Cropsey. So the next real question really was about other parts of your seminar. Uh-huh. You talked about some other things as well. Um, one of the big areas that you had studied was using plants as um, factories uh-huh. for important proteins. And, um, and could you give us an idea about what were some good examples of that? Yeah, so soybean is almost 40% protein. So you just got to ask yourself, what better system is there to make more of a protein? <laughs> it's a natural uh, protein factory. We just had to figure out how we could take advantage of that. <laughs> so as soon as we figured out the cellular biology of how to make and introduce protein and keep it stable, we then took two seconds to think about proteins we might want to make. And the first kind of protein that comes to mind is a vaccine or really any kind of pharmaceutical. So why do you think that plants are a better facilitator than microbes? Yeah, so microbes are, uh, people still grow um, most of your pharmaceuticals and things now uh, used are grown in some kind of microbial system, either it's yeast or an E. coli. But in the long term, plants are cheaper. So if you want to keep growing, you know, if you need uh, protein X, you're going to have to keep growing it in huge vats and you've got an army of 30 people in lab coats walking around and purifying. The idea here is we're going to undercut the cost by delivering it in a soy milk 
And as soon as you make somebody have to extract it to be completely pure, well, then that skyrockets the price. So we're working on things that we can deliver in that unpure form. And then it makes the costs so much easier and much more attainable, which means the cost goes down for all the consumers. Yeah, the other part on this, we recently had Elizabeth Hood on here, who also is a protein uh, enzyme creator in plants. And she really emphasized the idea that we're already really good at growing crop plants. Yeah. And we can grow, you know, 1,000 acres of corn, no problem. 1,000 acres of soybeans, not a big deal. So we already have the infrastructure in place for planting, harvesting, growing, uh, and processing and drying down seeds, and that seeds are also really good at storing proteins. Right. So you not only are you know microbe, you can't dry it down and save it for later. You can store a silo of soybeans that now will have your protein intact. Yeah. So the idea with the vaccines, you know, remember a few years ago they had the Ebola outbreak. I mean, the idea was if you had the seeds on your shelf, yeah. you know, just make your soy milk, drink the milk. If you needed more, grow some more plants. Like, that's the idea, is that you would have this kind of library of seeds that developing nations could have them. And your seeds that you started with were a little bit different. I mean, you you didn't just start with the average generic soybean seed because soybean seeds, as you mentioned, they store tons of protein as protein Mm -hmm. uh, in their cells. So what, what strategies did you use to change the soybean to be more amenable for your target protein? Yeah, so we had to do two tricks, and it took us a while to figure this out. Uh, One was keep the protein stable. So uh, many times when you would just put an introduced protein in, you could see it during the development of the seed, and as the seed would dry down, it would disappear because the seed is very good at scavenging all the nitrogen reserves and using it for what it wants to store it as. So it didn't want to store the introduced protein, so I got rid of it. So we uh, shuttled the introduced protein through the endoplasmic reticulum or the ER of the cell. And when you do that and overload it, it buds off, <laughs> at least in soybean, it buds off these little vesicles. So ER doesn't, uh, the soybean doesn't know what these ER vesicles are, so it doesn't degrade them. It doesn't go to the vacuole. It doesn't secrete them. It just lets them sit there because it's like, what I, I don't know what this is, and it sits there. So if we figured out a way to basically camouflage our introduced protein within that vesicle, so it, was it going to be stable? So that was hurdle number one that we got over. Hurdle number two was if you want a lot of a protein, well, you got to get rid of some of the storage proteins soybean has. So soybeans, 40% protein, but 80% of that is these two storage proteins. So we suppressed one of them the beta-conglycinin, to free up nitrogen reserves. And then we tried to take that nitrogen reserves and see if we can make an introduced protein, and we did. So right now we're at an 8% level of any introduced protein. So 8% of a 40% protein is a fairly big number. And then again, think of how many seeds, how many acre. You know, we can make a lot. You have to grow a lot of microbes to get that kind of coverage. And again, nobody in lab coats watching these plants grow. They're just growing out there. Yeah, it's great, and it's also good for a farmer. Right, so if you put something in that's economical for the farmer, he's getting an extra value for that harvest. That's really cool. So the research was super compelling, and it was really nice to get an update on the full program and the things that you've been working on. I know that um, Kat and I had discussed... Uh, other good questions for you too. It's wonderful to have you here as a successful woman in STEM and I was just browsing some statistics today and I saw that only 38% of women who actually uh, receive a degree 
in STEM actually go on to pursue it. And I know that there could be a lot of factors influencing those statistics. However, I thought it would be nice if you could share some of the challenges that you may have faced or some of your, that you've seen some of your colleagues face as a woman in science, technology, and research. Yeah, um, I gotta say I've been the lucky one. I know uh, I get asked this a fair amount uh, about what happened during the, my whole journey, and I too had nothing but male mentors the whole way. Uh, Would have been nice to have a few women, but I never really saw it that way. And I had a lot of male mentors that made a point, even early on in high school, of taking me aside and saying, "You can go anywhere." And it was amazing, you know, to hear that. And they actually used to focus on the fact that I was a woman. So actually, I was pretty good in physics. I'm actually one credit shy of getting a physics degree in my undergrad. (laughs) I used to take physics for the joy of it. And I used to be asked to take national physics contests because I was very good at it. And they would take me aside and say, as a woman, you can do anything in physics. And I thought, is that right? Like, shouldn't it be the best person? So I just, physics is great, but I found it a little too abstract. And like I said earlier, I'm so goal-oriented. I I really enjoyed the genetics more than the physics. But I never really had anybody in any way, shape, or form try to tell me I couldn't go anywhere. It was the opposite. Because you're a woman, you're going to have all these doors open to you. So I try to say that to all my students. Like, do what you want to do, and there'll be some doors open. But I can see, you know, some women... I don't have children, so some women might have children, and I'm sure that would be a big part of it, because when you're sort of pursuing your career is the same time you're probably having kids. Mm -hmm. So I could see that being a big hurdle, but I I knew even as a child I was too selfish to have kids. (laughs) Well, I I know that the children thing is a big deal. I know that uh, we've even seen some examples here of policies that have been in place that even though they weren't intended to do this, really did discourage women from perhaps being able to balance the, yeah. the, the children with the research career. And they're all, you know, policies that maybe would abbreviate the term you could be a postdoc, which right. really work disproportionately against women because this is kind of the time you do it before right. you're in your final position. And uh, you really can't do it during a PhD. So postdoc time is kind of that time. And it, what's nice that when you say that, that just it was just a little bit of encouragement that is was really valuable. And that's kind of a good thing to get out on the podcast is that you know, maybe we don't have to do any specific hand-holding or any special considerations, but we do have to be sensitive to the idea to encourage people when we can that even a little bit of a pat on the back and a little bit of, or not a physical one, because it gets you in trouble, <laughs> um, a, <laughs> um, just a, uh, a, 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 a suggestion that all the possibilities are there and I'm there to help you with them uh, could even be the most simple way to really promote women in STEM. Right, yeah. Just letting students in general know that things are open to them. Most of them don't know all the different opportunities, fellowship applications, when they're due, how they write one. You know, let them know that you're open to the idea of them coming to you and asking. I've had I've helped students even not even write an application to work for me. Yeah. You know, and it's like I understand that you made the decision not to work with me, but <laughs> Although I, I go elsewhere. But it's very true. I mean, I, I know that I'm I'm kind of I think the reason that I always say that I'm I'm a good a good administrator is because I'm unfair. <laughs> um, I, I do I am sensitive to the inequities in our in our field and the fact that there are biases and especially some male uh, folks who are reluctant to even bring on females even still exists even today. I think that it's good. Like I kind of tip the other direction. I try to be more 
promoting of female scientists, knowing that we've got a little ways to go in, not so far in plant biology or molecular biology. We're getting there pretty fast. But until that inequity is completely corrected, we really do need to be putting our thumb on the scale a bit. And so I do find myself trying to correct that more frequently with with female um, and and, and connecting um, new scientists with established female mentors and helping them understand, you know, what, what, what the process is and where we are. What is some advice that you would give a woman going into research? I know we kind of hit on that already, but if you have any additional tidbits or something that you think would have been helpful for you to have known when you were going into your career. Well, I I think even now, I I think women tend not to speak up as much as men do, right? So if a man speaks up, it might be, oh yeah, he's bold, he's... He's innovative, but if a woman speaks up, you know, some people think it's a negative. And I would say you, you need to not think about that. I think women think more about what other people are going to think more than men. And I, too, have that problem even now. So my advice would be speak your mind and forget about what somebody else is going to say. That's good. That's good advice. Mm-hmm. We're learning how to be tactfully assertive. Right. And that's and that's something that... that all of us need to be better at. I think men are less good at that, and they just—I've it, 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 never really thought about that before. You know, males just kind of put it out there, and, yeah. and here it is, and people go, oh, "He's just a guy," you yeah, know? just the way he is. Uh, you know, Dave will be Dave. You know that kind of thing. Right. And I think that's another thing you learn from administration and from managing people is how to get your tactful assertion. I, you know, that's a good advice. I always just say maybe it's because I'm Canadian. I'm too polite <laughs> Canadian because I, I sit there and I think, yeah, I should have said something. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, I have, I've been looking for Canadianisms and I haven't picked one up much. You did say earlier something about put it in the bag. And I thought, there's a little Canadian. Yeah. A little bit. But <laughs> you didn't say usually a Usually it's about, yeah, usually yeah. when I say things. Well, I've lived in the States for quite a while now. So. Yeah, so you lost a lot of it. Yeah, I'm losing it. You're you good at curling? Oh, I love curling, except there's no curling. There's no curling rigs around here. So when I went to grad school, we did it as a group, and that was a great team-building activity. We had a all-day Saturday curling event that the entire department did. So you had the department head falling on you because people couldn't stand up on the ice. It was a phenomenal team-building. So I've been looking for a curling event to try to get people. Because really, let's face it, I know it's an Olympic event, but you don't need to be an Olympic athlete to play curling. Yeah, just it's just like really elaborate horseshoes. It's uh, it's <laughs> shuffleboard on ice, really. Uh, I was I, I was watching it this year, and I said, "Why are they sweeping in front of the Roomba?" <laughs> you know. So, Dr. Monica Schmidt, thank you so much for spending the time with us today on the podcast. It was really nice to do this in person, and also really nice to hear your thoughts on women in STEM, which is always a really important issue for us here as we begin to think of ways that we can. Uh, Uh, counter gender biases as they occur. So thank you so much for your time today. Great. Thank you. It was a pleasure being here. Yeah. Thank you for uh, you, Kat, too. Thank you for joining us here. Of course. Thank you. Yeah. Do it again sometime. I'd love to. Was it painful? Not at all. (laughs) Do you encourage others to maybe send me an email at kevinfolda.gmail.com so that they can be a co-host too? I strongly encourage them to do so. Okay. Will you put it on your resume? Yes. Should I stop asking questions? Probably. (laughs) Thank you very much. Uh, Write a review on iTunes. Share with a friend. Um, More people who listen really increases our outreach in science. Thank you so much for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. 
Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.